and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 106. Now, this is where we round up the most important tech, digital, and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugu. Thanks for listening in. And once again, I'm rolling with the homie, Musaka Lenga. What's up, bro? Hey, Andy Le. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm glad to be back, as always. Don't say like you're surprised, bro. This is how it's going to be. <laughs> I'm always surprised. You know, when you get the callback and you're not expecting it. But yes, thank you for inviting me back again. Yeah, you're only just selling out venues and, uh, you know, so I mean, we're, we're honored. What can I say? Selling out tours, man. No, um, yeah, no, I've been busy for the last couple of weeks. Had uh, two really awesome masterclasses, which, as you said, were sold out Johannesburg and Pretoria. Spent some time in Cape Town, um, now back in, in Joburg. So, yeah, it's been busy, but uh, as always, love spending time with the Africa Tech Roundup family, man. For sure, Brian. But listen, uh, it's, it's a good one, too. We've got quite a bit of news coming up. Some international news that uh, got us chatting long before the show began, uh, as well as some interesting things happening in the renewable energy space out in East Africa. But we'll talk about all of that as soon as we do this. This episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by GoDaddy. GoDaddy makes registering domain names fast, simple, and affordable. They're the world's largest domain registrar, trusted by over 13 million customers around the globe. And they provide everything you need to get your business set up online, including award-winning 24-7 support. Now, to save 30% on a new domain name or to use any of their other services, go to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. Again, that's trygodaddy.com forward slash African tech to save yourself 30%. And so, yeah, with all that said, it's straight into this week's headlines. Malawi is where we begin this show this week. They've just landed $72 million from the World Bank to, quote, help digitize the country. Should we be excited, Musa? <laughs> well, to be honest, when I read that, I was like, what on earth does digitizing a country mean? You know, because there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of connotations and potential interpretations of what digitizing a country meant. So I did a little bit of digging to try and find out exactly what they meant. And it seems like there's going to be quite a, a long and, and deep drive around essentially laying down the foundations around what it's going to take to create um, a completely digitized Malawian government and providing um, the services and infrastructure to support Malawian citizens. Um, the foundations project is actually there to increase affordable, high-quality internet services. Um, and in so doing, it's trying to enable um, citizens as well as improve government's capabilities. So I think ultimately that's a, that's a great thing. Um, it's not going to be something that, that's done overnight. There's going to be a lot of groundwork, especially from an infrastructure perspective. Um, there's going to be a hell of a lot of discussions around regulation, strategy, and also where to start, right? Like, do we start with home affairs? Do we start with digitizing schools? Do we start with digitizing the criminal justice system? Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to consider. So, strategically speaking, you know, there's lots of different sub components, and you can get it wrong if you do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, so, I mean, if you look at the, the the objective around strengthening the capacity for institutions, as an example, um, this is providing enough infrastructure that can give feasibility, order trails, um, you know, capacity, uh, management, monitoring. That's a lot of stuff. So I think the starting point for me would be to get the infrastructure piece right, um, I would think, is that um, give as many people as much access as possible. So if you're talking about remote villages that need to be connecting, um, that has to be your starting point. The second, I would say, um, would be the digitization or the centralization of data storage. So, um, you know, if we're going to be accessing citizen data and or, and or business or enterprise data, you need 
to have a reference point that's easy and that's uh, that, that that can be used. And then the third would be kind of the front-facing uh, delivery mechanism. So how is it that you go and renew a license? How do you apply for certain things? Um, and then there's going to be a quite a hell of a lot of testing in in terms of the cycle for uh, um, um, for making sure that things work. So in my mind, that that's kind of how it would roll out. But uh, you know how these things go sometimes. I imagine there'll be a lot of people lobbying the Malawian government uh, proponents for you know internet as a right are going to be like, listen, we need to get free Wi-Fi to the masses. You're going to have the likes of Cisco probably lobbying to get like a backbone going. That doesn't start with a platform you can integrate everything into and then work from there. Yeah, I mean, uh, which big names do you expect to, to start sort of flying their big guns into into Malawi to take meetings. <laughs> well, you've mentioned a number of them. I think the, the, Cisco, the Cisco's of the world, the IBM's of the world, um, the, you know, the, the Microsoft, the, those, those are all people that are looking at those economies to try and find growth. Um, in fact, I think Laura Kullenberg, who's from the World Bank, um, says that you know technology is an absolute essential for Malawi in terms of the social economic development. Um, commerce as well as moving services online. Um, and when someone from the World Bank is saying such things, they obviously say that with, um, with, with, I, I think two hats. Uh, the first hat is, um, you know, the heartstrings and making sure you deliver value. But I think the second hat is very much commercial. Um, so partners related to the World Bank, um, will definitely be looking at how they can optimize an in inverted commerce. Um, and we've had lots of discussions about uh, what exactly optimization means. So my caution, um, you know, that, I, that I'd put out, especially to the finance minister who's driving this agenda, my caution is that um, set up the right, uh, the right brains trust of people that can have the correct conversations um, and that will be able to deliver um, value ultimately in the short and the long run to the, to the Malawian citizen. So um, I'm, I'm quite emotional about that because Malaw- my mother's Malawian, so they better do the right thing. Dude, I didn't know that. <laughs> Didn't you know my mother's Malawian? No, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, my mother's Malawian. My dad's Zambian. My mother's, uh, my mother's a Malawian, uh, born in Lili. You learn a new thing every day. You know, I mean, institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, for example, have been criticized for decades now for being the sort of institutions that seem content to drive impoverished nations, mostly like Malawi, into perpetual debt cycles that they can never leave. And it'd be interesting to sort of get an in on how the World Bank thinks about, quote unquote, sovereign projects like this. Is there a beginning and an end to the way they look at things like this? Or is this the start of a drip that's just going to carry on and on and on and on and, and basically need to become a feature of, of a country like Malawi's budget? Yeah, I think, I think you're touching on an important thing um, here, Andile. You know, I, I believe that one of the best, one of the most effective ways to own the soul of a country is to own the infrastructure. Um, and typically projects and or movements of this scale start out with a huge play from an infrastructure investment perspective. And once you get someone in on an infrastructure level, it's difficult to get them out. Um, ultimately, the conversation that needs to be had um, is what is the right, that's the correct balance as far as receiving foreign investment or foreign aid or foreign support. Um, and what is the balance and what is the breaking point between that foreign aid translating itself into not being able to actually pass and transcend value onto the Malawian citizens versus what's the right way and the most responsible way to take that aid or that investment, deploy it optimally, um, but immediately transfer rights and benefits over to Malawian citizens um, from a high level right down to the bottom. So I think, you know, that's the, that's the conversation which we've been, which we've been driving at for a number of uh, episodes. Um, and this is typically one of those projects that's going to have that thing, have to have that thinking baked in from the beginning. Um, but if it doesn't, um, I think it is going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, as you've mentioned. You know, once you get um, someone in that has paid for your infrastructure and that has essentially allowed you, or in inverted commas, ushered you into the digital age, they're there to stay, you know, and uh, that means that we're not necessarily changing anything. We're just perpetuating, um, you know, the unfortunate 
you know, benefit of or, or downfall anyway of, of foreign aid. So my opinion is that the starting point is going to be critical. Um, and if it doesn't get handled correctly, um, your uh, your assumption around perpetuating this, this challenge is definitely going to come true. And staying with infrastructure news, incidentally, the renewable energy project that I alluded to at the top of the episode actually being sold currently as the largest wind farm project in sub-Saharan Africa uh, is actually in Kenya and it's apparently ready for launch. The Danish wind turbine maker Vestas Wind Systems has installed 365 turbines at the Lake Turkana project. It's in the north of Kenya and uh, apparently they've completed construction of this project with two months to spare, well, two months ahead of schedule, sounding good. It does appear, though, that there's a PR push to let everyone know, I guess all the stakeholders know, like, listen, Vestas has done everything they needed to do. It's now up to the Kenyan government that apparently has not installed the transmission lines needed to get the clean power from the actual wind farm to their customers. It's actually the Kenyan government, I feel like they, they, they want us to know, that hasn't done their job to make sure that this project is ready to go online. Yeah, so very clever and proactive PR, as you've as you've mentioned. I think it's also important to note that I think the Kenyan government currently is producing about eighty percent of Kenya's electricity, um, and it's a majority owned by the Kenyan government, which is about seventy one percent. But um, the reality is that there's still a huge challenge in growing the amount of electricity available, simply because um, of the burgeoning middle class and the growing suburbia in in in, uh, in Kenya. Um, and we know that this uh, electricity consumption is growing probably at about six percent. Um, so, you know, we can't discount the fact that this uh, th- this kind of new cleaner approach to producing power is or renewable energy is important and required. Um, but I think, as I said, I think it's some clever strategic positioning around PR, almost shifting the blame so that nobody um, nobody ultimately comes back and holds them accountable. But, you know, as I said, let's hope uh, let's hope we get over this little hurdle. I think they seem to be right in the last stretch. So, yeah. And I mean, the project's uh, meant to add something like 310 megawatts of power to Kenya's grid. It's cost the Kenyan people 670. $78 million and essentially constitutes the country's largest single private investment in history. Now, again, these issues come into play. You've got a consortium here in the form of the Lake Tacana project, the likes of Vesta's wind systems being invested, but also the likes of the Finnish Fund for Industrial Cooperation, the Investment Fund for Developing Countries, KPNP Africa, the Sandpiper, you know, just to name some. Vestas itself, of course, owning a 12.5% stake in the project, which apparently once it's done, they're going to be selling that stake to guess who? Google. QR music. <laughs> Where's our syndicate music? Um, yeah, conspiracy theory. Selling to Google, hey, and we, you know. And not a conspiracy theory. I mean, this is what they've put out. They've, they, they're basically like, listen, look, we're going to make the thing. We're going to make sure it's up and running. And Google's interested in our stake, and we're happy to, to pass that along, which is a big deal. I mean, this, this wind farm is expected to provide something like 15% of Kenya's total electricity needs. I expect this has serious lucrative potential for this consortium. Yeah, Google's agenda in Africa is quite clear. Um, from an infrastructure perspective, they're going to make a huge play. A lot of the Google subsidiary services are going to require, um, you know, electricity. They're going to require uh, access to cloud services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so I find it really interesting that they're involved in that consortium and in the East Africa region as well. I mean, Kenya is obviously an entry point that uh, provides them a very good point of advantage. You know, I was challenged at um, the Afrobyte 
Rights Conference in Paris recently, as someone had listened to, the, you know, the last time you and I were both on the mic and the, the whole expat founder debate. And I mean, we touched on so many things, but someone came away f- from listening to us thinking, Andelia, are you anti-capitalism? And of course, I've got Marxist leanings. That, that isn't to say... I am a Marxist. I think I identify as a sort of social capitalist, if that's even a thing. And I've said that on the show before as well. I think what's been written up about this particular project and why it's been delayed for so many years, apparently as early as 2011, this project was meant to have gone online. It's faced delays due to what some people are calling bureaucratic issues. The way I see it really is we can't ignore what's at stake in terms of the whole privatization issue. Am I anti-privatization, anti-capitalist power, sort of owning means of production or, or infrastructure? Inherently, no. I am concerned about some of the things that you raise quite frequently, which is how will all of this eventually, and, and I say eventually because right now it's not going to serve anyone on the ground, but how will it eventually directly serve the average Kenyan in this case, or the average African, or the average global citizen who isn't a shareholder of said consortium, in, or a direct beneficiary from a financial perspective of an infrastructural development project like this. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, capitalism has ideologies, right? And it's got a strata of ideologies. I think it's it's only fair that as young African people, we define the ideology in which we are okay um, with the rest of the world playing with us from a capital perspective, right? That's okay. We shouldn't be made to feel as though we have to over-justify that. That, that That's the first thing. Uh, you know, so, so, so as you mentioned, someone that may have taken a little bit of offense to the standpoint we had in the last discussion, um, my viewpoint is quite simple, is that, you know, if we don't hold you accountable, when I say you, people that are coming in, um, you know, with ideas around expropriation and creating value and bringing in, um, in, you know, foreign investment, if we don't hold those kind of people accountable, who's going to do that job, right, firstly? Um, the second thing is that, as you've mentioned, if in an extreme, in its extreme expression, if there was this kind of warm and fuzzy, of course we're trying to do well and give back to Africa thing, um, which I which I don't really ultimately believe in, um, then there would be more of, of a holistic and definite approach to some of these projects. So, um, as you've mentioned, what's the start date? What's the finish date? Show me what is going to be beneficiated locally, and show me when you're going to be leaving. Right. If you're going to be if you're going to be, um, uh, you know, completely crude about it. Now, is that the way you'd want to do business? No. But is that the ideology which we need to be starting attaching to capitalism to have proper debates? I think absolutely yes, because we have to correct. We're self-correcting for a number of years, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, uh, firstly, secondly, is that we have to deal with the current problems on on the table, and we're not going to play you know play ignorant to the fact that there are problems. And hence, why I think that the debate is healthy. I think the debate is very healthy, but I think it hasn't yet been had um, to the extent that it's been independent, it's been honest, um, and it's uh, it's held people accountable, in my view. That's true. I mean, and again, we're debating arguably the most important issues of our time. Now, I don't want to make more of our podcast than it is. I mean, (laughs) guys, we're talking about the next frontier of value in terms of there's the internet of things, but we're really talking about as Don Tapscott puts it, the internet of value and and really how value is going to be defined and extracted in terms of the digital economy and how well-equipped as as African nations we are to actually play, add value on a global scale. And you can't ignore these issues in the context of what is now the largest single direct foreign investment in Kenya and also ignore the signal that sets in terms of one, it being an infrastructure play, two, it being a tech play, three, it being a renewable energy play, and then four, realizing that 
if there wasn't serious value to be derived, commercial value to be derived, you would not have uh, assembled a consortium as as sort of hefty and as well, you know, healed to commercialize on this opportunity as they have in this situation. And I think it's, like you say, really good that we talk about it and also get Kenyans thinking about, hey, okay, so about this value, that is the overarching reason why we should be excited about this beyond the commercialization and beneficiation in other ways. Sure, this is going to change lives. Sure, this is going to give us a head start on, on the region and perhaps the rest of sub-Saharan Africa in terms of like, creating our own energy and cleaner energy at that. But we need to start also measure the value or the perceived value that we're getting from a project like this with the long-term commercial value that the partners who have brought it to, the, to our shores, you know, are going to sort of continue to rake in as a result. Yeah. And and I, I mean, if, if I can just take on a little bit of a, of a, of a detour, I mean, I really want to liken this to, to, to the discussion and the debate around property rights, right? If you think about it, I think property rights go back to like the 1600s or whatever it was, um, but but a long time ago, right? And it was a set of rights that were developed, uh, and they were developed at the exclusion of many different race groups, right? And those rights were quite simple. The right to use a good, the right to earn an income from a good, the right to transfer the good to others, and the right to enforce property rights, right? Those were the, the four basic tenets of property rights. And to this day, those those tenets still govern the way people interact with property, transfer property, and have access to it. I really think in history we're at a watershed moment with in relation to the internet and, and, and digital where if we are not uh, defining what those rights are and the behaviors that, that, that uh, transfer value, um, we're going to find ourselves in 100 years' time looking back on a set of rules that we just were never, ever aware of. We weren't part of the playing field and weren't ever, to actually, ever able to get any, any kind of benefit from. So once again, as you said, I mean, the, the idea here is not, uh, not to offend. The idea is to push and to think. Um, but we need to be very honest with where we are in, in terms of a moment in time and hopefully through the debate and through the discussion get to a place where there's a, a better level of understanding as opposed to you know the offense that, that is taken sometimes. Um, and uh, as Mark said last time, is that we've got strong views here, but we hold them lightly. Um, but uh, we are open to alternative views, and we really and I appreciate anyway the feedback that we've gotten around our views. So um, that's, been, that's been really great. But also, offense is taken, not given. <coughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> All right. No, nah, no. Nah. We love you, fam. We love you, fam. No, no, no But keep it coming. Uh, people stepped up to me at the conference, as many of you do when you see me in person. We see the emails. I've been on WhatsApp back and forth, which is great. We love that. That's what we're here for. But for sure, the conversation must be had. And so that's what we're here for. Let's talk e-commerce next. Rocket Internet has recently put out their first quarter results for 2017. Of course, the reason we're interested in a European-based tech fund and their reports is because they happen to have a major stake in what is one of the largest e-commerce plays on the continent. And of course, we're talking Jumia, the Jumia Group. MTN owns about uh, 41.4% of it. So technically, you know, they love to go to market with how, okay, we're, we're totally African. Without a doubt, Rocket Internet owns a big chunk of that. Startling news, in fact, is that Jumia's revenues have declined by 16.9% year on year to just 19.2 million euro. And that's down from 23.1 million euro for the same period last year. It's also reported gross margins lower year on year at 28%. That's down 34.8% for the same period last year. And look, I mean, there are all sorts of excuses that are being put out for this reason, not least the economic downturn that Nigeria has, has faced of late. But also what they're saying is has been a shift to a marketplace model, which they didn't take on before. 
Yeah, I think the bad news, uh, you know, unfortunately continues to happen as uh, they've seen huge macroeconomic changes, um, especially in markets where I'm pretty sure they had big bets like Nigeria and Egypt. Um, lots of stuff around foreign exchange scarcity, around the devaluation of currencies, et cetera, et cetera. And I think even at a macro level, if you look at uh, one of their uh, owners, uh, Kinovec, um, which sold their remaining stake in Rocket Internet um, after they saw a 4% drop. Swedish company um, actually withdrew their investment. Um, and in so doing, I think it's another negative signal as far as uh, Rocket Internet is concerned, um, but more so in their context where they had placed big bets in emerging uh, markets like Nigeria. I think there's a lot that they need to do um, to cut that back on track. But I think the shift in the model plus the uncertain external economic uh, uh, landscape is a tricky one to navigate. So, yeah, not the, not the greatest of news, but I think we need to watch that closely. It was a huge bullish push towards uh, investing in e-commerce, you know, in the last sort of four or five years within Nigeria. And Nigeria specifically, given its population size, people just thought it was the sure bet that was going to grow. People saw, you know, the the growth in smartphone penetration, increases in, in internet penetration and just thought, man, the gravy trains, gravy trains in, guys, let's jump on board and... It just hasn't turned out that way. And to be fair to the Nigerian market, it's not just Nigeria. I think there's been a ton of oversimplification in terms of what it takes to succeed in the e-commerce scene, not just there, but even in relatively more developed market like South Africa. I think people totally underestimate what it costs to acquire and keep a client within the context of e-commerce uh, on the African continent, certainly within Nigerian context, and just how far ahead of the curve companies like Jumia and perhaps Conga are and how ready they need to be to sort of just muscle their way or money their way to sustainability because it's nowhere near happening within the next year or 18 months even. Yeah, and I think that's one of the typical things is uh, the trap of report-based strategy versus tactile or experience-based strategy. I think if you look at any of the reports, Nigeria is like this big glowing opportunity. Um, but your tactile experience of what it's going to take to deliver on that opportunity generally is something different. So um, when I looked at e-commerce and I looked at Nigeria and you go there and you kind of weigh up the pros and cons of some of the issues around last mile delivery, um, you know, it kind of, it, it makes you step back and kind of reconsider. Um, so while I believe there's a huge problem to be solved there, I do think that there's going to need to be a little bit more of a tactile based um, or a tactile approach um, to how to figure that out first and foremost, and probably um, a little bit more of an investment from an infrastructure perspective around uh, uh, moving goods around, you know, the, and, and maybe experimenting with stuff that's a little bit less conventional. Um, you know, I know there's been a lot of stuff being done around motor scoot, uh, motorcycle delivery, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do we need to be moving more to drone-based kind of stuff? I mean, that's a question that we need to solve for huge traffic issues, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a more tactile approach needed there to really survive. But um, as I said, let's watch the space. I'm certainly betting on on them to get it right eventually. I, I think the the success in this space is going to go to whoever can outlive their competitors. Because, I mean, there's no doubt that the market is going in that direction and that the addressable market will grow. And it, in fact, is growing, will grow. How fast, on the other hand, I can't say. But I'm certainly bullish on the fact that it will happen. It's just, will it happen as quickly as we all hope or want? Uh, certainly hasn't happened so far. I would have been one of those people four or five years ago who would have bet on Nigeria being easily uh, as large an e-commerce market as some of the developing world by now. But 
it wasn't to be. But staying with e-commerce, interestingly, is a story that we covered recently. That is off uh, cars45.com. We're not really speaking about them uh, at the, today. We're actually speaking about the, the group uh, that is responsible for their successful uh, Series A round of funding. We're talking about the Frontiers Car Group. Of course, they shelled out a good 5 million big ones uh, to help Cars 45 navigate probably what I'd estimate to be the next 12 or 18 months for that kind of money. What's interesting is is EcoVC Plus is now a new investment vehicle that has been formed by EcoVC Partners and TPG Satya coming together. And they've made their first investment as a joint consortium by investing in Frontier Cars Group to the tune of $22 million. Uh, this apparently happened in May already. As part of the deal, Egosa Omoyigui, EcoVC's managing general partner, uh, has been granted a seat on Frontier Car Group's board. They're, of course, headquartered in Berlin. The Frontier Car Group, you might already know, has operations in Chile, Mexico, Nigeria, Pakistan, as well as Turkey. Really nice to see a seasoned African tech player being given a seat at us at the strategy table of uh, what's becoming quite a serious investment outfit. Yeah, and it's, it seems like uh, the kind of the Frontier Group itself um, is kind of hedging its bets on some of the strengths which it already has. So they focus on increasing efficiency of selling and buying cars in challenging environments. <laughs> I wonder what challenging environments means. But I don't know whether Mexico, <laughs> Chile, or Nigeria, or Pakistan counts as challenging. But yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, they're probably very good, uh, very good markers for challenging environments. But they do so through technology implementation and infrastructure creation. Now, coming to the previous point on the story we discussed, the infrastructure creation piece, we can't um, we can't underplay um, the importance of that, especially when we're solving for you know kind of really underdeveloped environments, um, they're not a they're not a young company. They've been around for a couple of years, um, but I think as you said, it's quite uh, quite important that uh, the ethos of what they believe is around uh, empowering and finding um, successful local entrepreneurs to build and develop businesses in a way that is specifically tailored to the market in which they operate. So the ethos around um, the capital approach is what we've been speaking about, and uh, you know by by uh, by any stretch of the imagination, what it looks like. Um, is that the approach that they're using is definitely better suited to the environment. Um, they also believe that every environment or every market is different and requires unique skills. So I think that's a great write-up for them, and I think it's a you know it's a really good signal. I think from a strategic perspective, the auto sector, auto industry, um, is going to really need a lot of thinking to go behind it. I mean, it's one of those that um, in our emerging markets uh, completely debunks any Western models around uh, um, showrooms, around experiences, around how people buy vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. There's a huge piece around financing and cash and that kind of stuff. Um, so I really think, as you said, from a strategy perspective, um, it's great to see that they've been able to bring a, you know, a, a homegrown player around that table to be able to have some of those conversations. I think that's an exciting one to watch. It'll be interesting to see how relatively more successful or less successful, perhaps, they are compared to their Berlin-based competition, Rocket Internet, which, of course, does not move into markets in nearly the same way as Frontiers does. I mean, as you know, sort of Rocket Internet does the, the copy and paste approach. They copy successful models abroad and look for sort of markets where they think they can deploy quite quickly and fast and just where, you know, they can sort of just swoop in with a ton of money and make it work. Let's see. Maybe Frontier Car Group will show us all how it ought to be done. Yeah, and I think if you look at some of the other investors in the Frontier Car Group, you know, you've got Balderton Capital, London-based, TPG Growth, London-based, EcoVC, London-based, NEA, Silicon Valley, Partnership Ventures, Paris, Hummingbird Partners, Turkey, Oil, uh, Oriflame, Sweden, 
Flatwave, uh, San Francisco, Car Price, Moscow. I mean, these uh, you know these geographies are, are heavy hitting uh, geographies when it comes to deploying. Uh, technology and some of them are really, really interesting plays. I mean, markets like Turkey and uh, um, and, uh, and and Russia. So I'm I'm quite hopeful. I think it's a interesting mix of investors. I think it's a, a a very clear approach in terms of the markets that they're going into. And I just hope their strategy from a you know from an activation or implementation perspective um, is also thought through well. But I think it's it's really a silver bullet to have an, a partner um, involved like EcoVC. So as I said, I think really, really a good one to watch out for. Yeah, definitely. It's becoming the, almost the United Nations VC type thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's going to be good to see what they deliver. Africa at the table, though, what's not to love? And so moving on, there are at least 301 fintech startups operating on the continent at the moment. Well, that's according to a Disrupt Africa fintech report that claims that over $92 million has been invested in Africa's fintech scene. Yeah, you know, fintech kind of bores me at the moment, to be very honest. <laughs> but, but why? But why? There's just a lot of stuff happening, a lot of movement, no, no impact. You know, <laughs> you know, I feel like there's a lot of things and there's a lot of stuff, and you know, ninety-two million, uh, you know, dollars and three hundred. How many people? How many startups? Three hundred eleven, three hundred twelve. That's a lot of uh, three hundred one. Sorry, yeah. that's a lot of stuff happening, right? Um, and for me, at the moment, it's quite difficult to kind of you know weed you know the 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 weed from the chaff in the sense that who's doing the stuff that's really impactful who should be registering on the radar to be looking at um and i think it's kind of that you know in the beginning of any race like a a motorcycle race or you know when there's everybody's like scrambling and trying to figure out who's going to be the leader who's not i think it feels for me it's kind of that phase um and every time i try and kind of get a sense of who's doing what and being able to see what the log table for lack of a better word looks like there's just something else added to it so um for me i've kind of stepped back a little bit emotionally from it until we start to see some real impact um, you know, but the stuff that's happening, you know, with regards to the investments, I don't think is going to change anytime soon. Um, it seems like um, of the nine fintech categories covered in the report, a um, number of them are in payments and remittances and, um, you know, startups is dominant in the market. There's about 41% of those startups that are only focused on that space. So lending and financing are also, you know, potential areas. But as I said, there, there for me seems to be a lot of a lot of movement, no real impact yet. I suppose we also don't get enough data on how well they're doing. Uh, we only have the investment that they land either, you know, at the seed phase or, you know, at the early stages uh, or the later early stages and that kind of thing. And usually use that as an indicator of maybe the business fundamentals that underpin like how healthy a business, say like an MFS Africa, for example, might be doing. Also, we get indications here and there when fintechs get snapped up by, by banks, for example. Uh, it usually points to, in my mind at least, the the value proposition in terms of banks finding real efficiencies that can be derived from, from bringing on board the innovation that um, they haven't been able to build uh, on the inside. And from that standpoint, I, I start to sense that, oh, okay, there's some economic rigor applied to the excitement that, you know, the, the market seems to be having in fintechs. Yeah, fair, fair point. I think there might also be an opportunity for us on the show to, to, to figure out if we can dedicate a show to kind of the fintech leaderboard. So maybe, you know, dissect it into the lending space, transacting space, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe try and just give an understanding of, you know, the players in that space. And, and who's doing what? Who's doing what, how it's stacking up. I mean, 301 startups is a lot of startups, right? So anybody that is interested in that space or has data, um, about what's happening in that space would be great to share it so that we can give um, a slightly better um, analysis of the whole thing because I think going into one at a time when you've got 301, I think is a big ask.
Yeah, also, I, I like that. And I, I like what Disrupt Africa has done here by sort of subcategorizing them. Um, but a, a leaderboard is, would really be a good idea. And of course, any of you keen on sending us insights, <laughs> go ahead and do it, man. Drop us a, a voice note, an email via hello at African Tech Roundup, or drop us a, a tweet or hit us up on Instagram at African Roundup. And of course, we are on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Who do you think is getting it right now in terms of fintech? What should we be super excited about? What should we be less excited about? You let us know and we put it on the show. Now to Nigeria next where we update a story that we uh, covered some months ago. Etisalat Nigeria owing its creditors something like 1.7 billion US dollars. And you might recall that we reported that a consortium of banks that uh, they owe money to were looking to take over the business in a bid to basically recoup that money. There's also been rumors that Glow might acquire Etisalat. Uh, and now the whispers in the wind suggest that two of the telco's major shareholders from the UAE are in talks with the, the banks in question to hopefully stave off a takeover. So Etisalat Nigeria is the number four mobile phone provider um, and is jointly owned by Etisalat and the UAE mobile phone group, which owns about 40%, as well as Bahadala Development Company, um, which is a state-owned investment vehicle um, from the government of Abu Dhabi, which owns 30%. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the the constitution in terms of how it's assembled is of people that seem to have a lot of access to cash. I don't think that'll be the problem. Um, the challenge is that as they have talks with creditors and banks, they're trying to essentially make sure that the loans are paid off so that they continue to operate. Um, we hope that they'll be able to get kind of some positive outcome. That's a lot of money. What did you say the amount was? 1.7 odd billion. I think that comes to about 541 billion naira, dude. That's nothing to, to, to sniff at, yeah? Yeah, that's a lot of money. Um, and uh, I think as they, as they go down the discussion to try and make sure that they get some resolution. Um, there's been some back and forth around who did what, but at the end of the day um, given... Or who didn't really, because at this point, I mean, there's clearly something not working as well as it should. Exactly. But uh, as you as you know, as you've suggested, um, hopefully the conversation results in that being resolved because uh, they own quite a big uh, share of the market and consumers need to win at the end of the day. And our mates at techcabal.com, of course, tell us that um, the executives over at Etisalat claim that it's only the the Nigerian Communications Commission and, of course, the Central Bank of Nigeria that are currently trying to broker talks between the consortium of banks that uh, is owed money and Etisalat, basically not admitting that anyone else is currently speaking on their behalf to try and keep them from being uh, taken over by those banks or indeed or indeed you know, from being acquired or something like that. Look, like Musa says, we really hope this gets settled quickly. We did speculate on the last on the show the last time we mentioned this that it'd be quite interesting to see a player like maybe Econet or another local player like make a play for this. Not not MTN, that'd be boring. Also, yeah, probably I don't know if competition rules would allow that to happen in Nigeria. Never mind that MTN. Even this week has got issues in Nigeria. They're probably not interested in in, in deepening their woes by buying something like a Tesla. But it'll be interesting to see who snaps this up. Yeah, I think that would uh, definitely be an uh, an interesting twist, especially with someone that comes out from outside the region. So, like an or- like orange or, or something like that. Absolutely, that would uh, make for good uh, good TV. Yeah, definitely. And 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 we know orange is on on the prowl apparently for for good prospects. Um, I don't know if they would consider this a particularly good one, but yeah, it'd be interesting. This conspiracy theory. <laughs> 
Our final African item for the week involves an Egyptian investment by Egypt's largest tech fund, Algebra Ventures, which of course closed a 40 million tech fund in December last year. And they've sunk $1.5 million of that fund in an Egyptian food discovery platform called El Menus. Yep, and our menu seems to be a startup based in Egypt, um, and they strongly believe that every dining decision should be social, visual, and personalized, right? So they're all about uh, discovering and ordering the food that, they, that you'll love as a consumer, um, which is important. And I think if you look at food and the decisions you need to make, potentially there's plenty of those, so you'd want to be able to discover them in a quick and easy way. Um, they're growing quite a lot, so they've got over 2 million dining decisions taking place um, with over 500,000 dishes and 4,000 restaurants and growing. So um, great to see some innovations coming out of Egypt, which is, uh, which is good. Fantastic, yeah. And uh, perhaps to close off our show today, let's talk two international news items that sort of captured our imagination this week. Of course, everyone's been talking about the Uber CEO, Travis Kalanick. Travis Kalanick. I don't know how you say that. Travis. Let's just call him Trav. So Uber CEO Trav. <laughs> TK. Yeah, let's TK. TK. Let's call him TK. So Uber CEO Trav uh, has taken an indefinite leave of absence. He's in an email to his staff. He's told them that he uh, needs to get over the loss of his mother who died in a boating accident and he needs time to think and become a better person and all that. And Uber needs to become a better person. Yeah, Uber's got lots of cultural issues. I mean, further complicating the situation, uh, David Bonderman resigned from Uber's board um, after making a sexist comment um, at the all-staff meeting. At the very meeting where they're trying to address sexism. That's crazy. Um, I've, I've said for a long time, I've got a kind of love-hate relationship with Uber, but I think from a cultural perspective, they've just got a lot of work to do. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff that... Uh, it happens in the C-suite and the executive level, and I just think that there's a there's some cultural disconnect, you know, between the you know the C-suite and what they expect, and the, and the organization that they're trying to build and run. I think there's a lot of um, expectation for new age companies like Uber to pay attention to the human element, and they just don't seem to get that um, or get it right anyway. And I mean, there's damning findings by the the law firm that was tasked to investigate if there might be, you know, policy issues or in fact, culture issues in the company. And of course, they found tons naturally. And I mean, there are tons of outstanding cases uh, around sexism and, and all sorts of prejudice that's been shown to to, to minorities. And there have been a, some of the suggestions being made by the law firm to to correct them, you know, have been met with sustained by some, have been embraced by others. What can I say except that one of those recommendations is that a COO be brought on board. Travis has obviously been asked to step aside as that as that hire is made and as to whether he'll be asked back in, into, the, into the driver's seat once they've appointed someone remains to be seen. But what they have recommended, and of course the board has accepted all these recommendations, is that a COO will now need to work really in a hand-holding capacity to the CEO and, and hopefully be tasked with changing the culture at Uber. As to whether that's going to happen or not, it remains to be seen. That it does. But I think one thing that uh, what they can't avoid is that as their business grows at the rate that it's growing, um, they're going to need to be getting a, a lot more employees that believe and buy into the brand. And, and the culture being a pillar of that is going to be extremely um, important to them. They are making a lot of investments in driverless cars and in technology from that perspective. But uh, even that's embattled at the moment. I mean, there's a lawsuit around that and one of their suppliers around that. I mean, there's there's a lawsuit that imperils their entire 
a riderless car situation. Oh my word. So Uber's having an MTN kind of season at the moment. Yeah, they are, unfortunately. But as they say, never waste a good crisis. So I think there is an opportunity for them to turn things around, but it does require quite a bit of clarity and some strategic leadership. So trust the digital marketer to spin that one. That's me. <laughs> wow, wow. Well done there, Musa. Wait, it just occurred to me. Did you just do that because they're looking for a COO? Dude, is this, are you turning this into like a CV episode? <laughs> never. I'm not selling out. No, 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 no. I wasn't. I was just, you know, it's true. Never waste a good, uh, good crisis. How crazy would it be if they hired an African? Jeez, uh, uh, look at that. I mean, that's going to be a big thing for their culture issues, but they better hire one for the right reasons, not oh, because of an African. Oh, my word. That would take them from like diversity. Yeah, that would do a lot for their diversity profile. But talking about diversity profile, our last story is also an international story. Yahoo's CEO, Marissa Mayer, easily one of the more high-profile women in tech in the world, has decided to step down following the company's successful acquisition by Verizon. Now, we've also spoken about this on the show, how that was nearly something that didn't happen. The, the huge embarrassment around Yahoo's security breach nearly compromised that deal. But Mayer is now walking away with uh, like literally millions of dollars in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the golden handshake, they call it. And um, it's so interesting to see some of the problematic ways women in leadership positions like Mayer are treated either in the media or certainly uh, private conversation. When in fact, I mean, the truth is she's delivered tons of value for, for Yahoo shareholders who at some point had had to face the prospect of losing everything as far as the investment in Yahoo is concerned. She's turned it around. She's done, I'd say, a really good job as an executive. I, I completely agree. And I think, uh, as you said, Unfortunately, the, the spotlight is always that much more focused on, on females and leadership, especially in the technology space. Um, but you cannot doubt the value that she's created and potentially delivering them from a, um, from a hazardous situation. When she joined Yahoo, um, the share price was down. The culture was a mess. The organization needed optimization. So she inherited a dud. Correct. But she's been able to turn that around and be able to, you know, find a willing buyer and actually sell it for a, for a decent amount. So I take my hats off to her and other ladies in tech. Um, and I think it's important that we, um, we put them on the pedestal and we shine the light when we need to. Wouldn't she be an awesome COO for Uber? <laughs> Have you been hired by Uber? <laughs> but seriously, dude, like, but wouldn't that be like from the frying pan to the fire though, right? Absolutely, but you're right. I mean, in terms of her profile being a, a, a blonde uh, American lady to go and work at an organization that seems to have lots of issues of sexism like Uber. But also like becoming now, I, I suppose on some level, from a business standpoint, now people say a lot about Yahoo and how, you know, um, it was, let's, let's face it, it was a business in demand. It was always going one way. But this woman did what very few business executives could do in that context is derive value um, from, from a really bad situation and, and really just keep this company from becoming typical MBA case study fodder for, for what not to do or how not to become another Kodak and that kind of thing. She really pulled some serious business stunts to pull off what she did. And it would be interesting to see what she does next. How's this for a mic drop moment, though? So she's asked what she looks forward to. And man, she says one of the things she's looking forward to after leaving Yahoo is using Gmail. Dang! <laughs> Drops mic. <laughs> what a way to leave. But uh, yeah. And then, she, oh no, and then she even says, you know what, yeah, it's always better to, I always look forward to using products that I created myself. Dang! <laughs> of course. Can't waste a good crisis. <laughs> no, she just, she just had to remind people that I don't care what you think of me. Some of the more high-profile successes that Google has enjoyed over the years, I've had a hand in. 
London and I did a reasonably good job here, whatever you think of me, and I'm about to leave. Bye. Just in case you didn't know. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I know. Good for you. And I really do wish her the best. I'll be watching her and, and also watching the sky for other women to inhabit the space. It's really nice to see that happen. And, and I hope it's not just an overseas thing. I hope it's a trend that we can start to see happen here. Of course, we know you worked for a, a woman over at Facebook. That's a start, I guess, Facebook Africa. It is a start. I think there's a lot of uh, diversity uh, issues um, and challenges with lots of tech businesses. Um, and I think, uh, you know, from my experience while I was working with Facebook, um, it definitely is high on the agenda as far as a priority to try and figure out how to address some of those challenges. Um, a more diverse workforce, you know, by uh, anybody will agree, um, is a beneficial thing ultimately to any business, especially global businesses growing at the speed um, like, uh, you know, like Facebook's and the Googles of the world. So I think the diversity issue is a huge, uh, is a huge uh, challenge. Um, but I definitely have seen signals in the right direction. You know, uh, as, as you mentioned, Facebook Africa, um, even Facebook in terms of their commercial organization, there's a lot of really strong female leaders and I'm a huge advocate for that. So I, you know, I say let's, uh, let's make it as, uh, um, as enjoyable a process as possible because I think those seats occupied by men and unfortunately, um, middle-aged white men, um, can be quite uncomfortable for incoming people that are not only just women, but people that are different from what they look like. So that diversity challenge and getting the right kind of people around the table to solve these really complex challenges is ultimately all of our problem um, because the limitation is going to be passed on to the consumers that we're hoping to serve. So, And yeah, again, I was also accused by someone at uh, Afrobytes conference recently of like having it in for Facebook, which I don't. If there's something admirable they're doing, like quite frankly, doing tons better than most of their contemporaries within tech in terms of like having women do what they do best, which is add serious value and acknowledge that and bring women on board to do that. Well, kudos to them. Uh, net neutrality on the other... Okay, let me not get it. Let me not get started. <laughs> you are in such a good wicket there. Yeah. This is the part where we say goodbye. This is the part where we say goodbye before we get into net neutrality issues. Okay, so um, that's the show this week, guys. One last time, many thanks to GoDaddy for sponsoring this episode of the African Tech Roundup. Now remember, you too can buy your own domain name, build your site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools, saving yourself 30% by going to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. That's trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. It's always a pleasure to have you on an episode, Musa. Always a pleasure to be here and I look forward to seeing you guys next time. Certainly, guys. Please stick around. Thank you so much for sticking around till the end of the episode and lots of great content to check out if you would like to catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Indeed, taking some useful insights from leading thinkers and doers within Africa's tech industry, please go ahead to africantechroundup.com. We will sort you out proper. But for now, I'm Andy Masugu. And I'm Musa Kalenga. Thanks for listening, folks. Do take care, Africa.